Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly, with you in studio Amir Tibon. Later on today's show, we'll discuss the climate crisis in the Middle East. Will a region once known for wars over oil experience in the future wars about water? But before that... And hello to Professor Avner Cohen of the Middlebury Institute, one of the leading experts in the world when it comes to nuclear weapons, and I can also say a friend of Haaretz. Hello, Avner. Indeed. Good morning. Thank you for joining us from uh, California at a very early hour today. Uh, you must be following, like us, the headlines about the talks with Iran. We heard today Prime Minister Bennett warn from his point of view that a new agreement was emerging and that in his view it would be a bad one. Do you agree with the two estimates by the Prime Minister? First, that an agreement is close, and second, that it will be weaker, in his words, than the previous one? I tend to agree about the later, that if it's going to be an agreement, it's likely to be, in some important respect, weaker than the older one. I'm more uncertain whether we are very, very close to agreement. In my view... Even though that those who negotiate may have reached some tentative agreements, my impression is that there will be hesitancy at this political moment, especially in Washington, to approve right now uh, a weaker agreement. Let's try to unpack it first of all. When yeah. we talk about a weaker agreement compared to the 2015 Iran deal, the JCPOA, What does that mean? What makes it weaker that this proposed agreement that you are saying is not yet finalized at all than the previous one? Well, we do not have concrete facts from the negotiation. There is a great deal of uncertainty about the details and it's deliberate. The impression is that it's getting from those negotiation that an agreement would be an effort to go To the same principles and the same modalities as 2015, but without giving a full satisfaction, satisfactory response addressing what Iran has been doing during the period between 2018 or 2019 and today. Basically, what you're saying is, after President Trump decided to withdraw from the previous That's agreement, right. Iran used that as an excuse time. Yeah, to do all yeah. kinds of things. You can maybe uh, inform our audience what exactly they've been doing. And now there is an attempt to go back to the old agreement without touching on those recent developments. That's the impression of, of many observers. Again, we do not know for sure, but that's the impression of many observers. That, as you know, there is a difference in leadership in Iran. The current leadership is less believing in the ability to reinvest in Iran as a result of the uh, removing of the sanctions. Of course, they would like to remove the sanctions. They would like to get the money. They would like to sell more oil. But they also believe that they have built Iran, which is stronger and more immunized against those problems, especially there, what they call their relations through the Eastern frontier, in particular China. China essentially was not part of the sanction and it allows a great deal of, of traffic with, with Iran. So there is a difference in attitude in, in Iran and there is apparently reluctance to give up 
what they have been doing uh, during those two and a half years. And it seems that the um, that the Western negotiation, including the American team run by Rob Molly, is willing to have some kind of agreement. So there is a great deal of questions. What about how to roll back what they have been doing? And it's not clear. And in that respect, if there was going to be a deal, the view of many is that it would not address, definitely not address adequately, what what, what has been doing in those two and a half years. So this is the concern. Is there, in that respect, it would be weaker. Is there a way, do you think, to get an agreement that also pushes back on these Iranian moves, like, for example, the uranium enrichment that was expanded uh, since yeah. Trump left the agreement? Do you think it's possible to get a deal that will also address these problems? It's not problems? clear at all that the Iranian leadership would be between willing and ready to uh, roll back its achievements during that time. Mm-hmm. The, the, and the, therefore, the, if you want a deal, the deal is likely to be weaker in, in, in some respect. I'm not clear about the final language, but it's, it's, it's the view of many that the Iranian leadership today is more uh, sternious, it's more um, tough than the previous one. And it's believed that Iran's economy has immunized itself and it's, it's, they have different perspective, both on the economy and on the political chances than the previous leadership. What can uh, the Biden administration do about this? I mean, do they have any cards to play with? The Biden administration, very much like the Trump administration, is not interested to so far, even though they may have a slight rethinking on this issue, What I was about to say that they were not ready to raise the military threat. Uh, it was a non-issue for, for Trump, who was only thinking in the economic terms, and he thought that the economic pressure and sanctions would lead back to Iran, Iran weaker. I don't think that he was right in that. I think that gamble was, was proved to be false. And definitely Trump was not ready to use military means. I mean, the fact that he took the gamble and uh, was ready to assassinate Soleimani in, in Iraq. And indeed, Iran responded in a very light way. Uh, was not, uh, th- does not show that uh, Trump was ready to take a full military action against, um, we against saw, Iran. We saw it after the incidents with the drones okay. and the containers in the Gulf, that at the end of the day, when he had to choose um, between... Uh, attacking Iran or using other methods, he, he did not go for a military attack. It was not fully appreciated in Israel, but Trump was very, very economic, very, very uh, stubborn against, this was his big criticism about the war in Iraq in 2003, and uh, he was very much against to go to, 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 to military adventures. It seems actually that the Biden administration, possibly because of what's going on right now in the Ukraine, is more ready at least to consider the military card as a way to, to dissuade Iran even stronger than the Trump administration. But it seems that on the diplomatic way, either you get a deal which is going to be a weaker, or you have to, to remain in the land of uncertainty and to make clear by various messages, some tacit, some open, that if Iran is going to cross certain kind of uh, red lines with its nuclear program, a military action will be taken. The problem is that... The surveillance over the Iranian nuclear program would be much more difficult without an agreement. 
So you won't necessarily be able to tell if they have crossed those thresholds. It would be more difficult to tell for sure. And I think the Biden administrations is not that again on this issue, not that different from the Trump administration would make those red lines much further. In other words, they would they, they would allow Iran getting closer and closer to being a threshold state, threshold nuclear state. And that is the concern. Uh, my own view that Iran has not decided, and I do not see it changing at any near future, to be a fully nuclear weapon state. I don't think that's the card. But so, I think Iran would like to be more and more advanced threshold nuclear weapon state, which means that the distance between Iran and the bomb would be limited to not even months as it is right now, but rather weeks and possibly even to have the speculations of days. They want to get to the point where the only thing missing is the decision to do it. To do it meaning to fully assemble and to have a weapon, but to have more and more components ready to go and uh, available to them. So it will be a capability which is very close to, to, to the weapons, yes. And my concern is that the both the Biden and also the Trump administration would have allowed to quite a bit of latitude to Iran as long as it's not being seen uh, to be getting closer and closer to that threshold, which is not dramatically different from the way that they looked at Israel in the 60s. Yeah, the, what less there are differences. What, what, yeah. what lessons have the Iranians learned? This is an interesting question. From the Israeli historical uh, experience with uh, nuclear weapons, which of course uh, uh, we only we only deal. have according to foreign press uh, sources. Of course, I think that's a great deal. By the way, it's interesting that uh, my own book has been illegally translated to Iran in 2004 with a full and lengthy Iranian Parsi uh, translation. So they know something about that history, even from hopefully good sources. I think what Iran has learned is that. As long as the certain obvious steps are not being taken, and the most obvious one is to do a test and to make a full statement, there is a sense of toleration to accept movement towards the bomb. Of course, Iran is different from Israel. Iran is a signatory to, to, the, to the NPT. Uh, the GCPOA put some limits on, on Iran, which Iran has to some extent erased over the last two and a half years, not fully, but to some extent. And I think Iran would like to move further and further towards the um, sense of very close to the bomb, keeping everybody guess how close it's exactly, not making any overt move that would allow what would be seen as an obvious red line and it would put Iran a target for military attack doing it in a slow and delicate way, uh, politically avoiding open and even secret a full decision to have nuclear weapons, keeping a certain sense of compromise between the various factions within Iran and saying that closing to the bomb is not getting closer and closer to the bomb is not yet the bomb. And in doing so, positioning Iran in a way that it's being seen by its neighbors in itself as essentially a threshold state. 
Iran right now, by now, is not truly a threshold state yet. And some element of being a threshold state, it's very, very difficult for, for intelligence to, 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 to penetrate. Weaponization, uh, stuff, work that is being done under a roof uh, with very, very limited signature. And if you care about uh, Signet, you're going to keep very uh, tight element of uh, communication secrecy so you you don't you don't you don't you don't expose yourself it's very on, in that area it's very very difficult to to know where the country is uh, it's easier to know on the elements of the uh you know the fission materials mm-hmm. and the work around the fission materials so if if we already opened the conversation on israel and iran um Do you think Israel still has a real military option when we look at the state of today's Iranian nuclear program? My impression is yes, but I think it's a very limited military option. I think like others here in the United States that at best it would buy Israel a year to two years. Whatever Israel destroys in a military attack from the air, you think Iran could reconstruct within two years? That's the view of, of many, many people, yes, possibly even less than two years. I think that what the Israeli strategy is that in case of that, to create a situation that it will be ultimately a joint operation American-Israeli. And I think the effort that Gantz and Bennett and others are doing is to push the United States To highlight stronger the military option first as a political diplomatic leverage but also in terms of preparation that if it would come to that it will be a joint operation I don't think that the United States is there but I think there are early signs of more readiness to consider some kind of cooperation in part because by the way one of the issues that I've not mentioned yet is and this is the difficulties for agreement in the United States is that the um, as you know right now there is a very very slim majority on both sides of the Congress for the Democratic uh, Party for Biden that's right but the concern is that uh, it might change in the uh, midterm elections 2022 you, usually 2022. the president's party loses seats in uh, in Congress it often might happen that's right and the view is that the Republicans, couldn't undermine a weak agreement but various kind of sanctions resolutions and others so and some of it the, the president may overrule some of it he may not be so there is a sense that also it would I don't think that the Biden who tried very hard right now to appear as a unifier of NATO as a symbolism of strength in Europe uh, would be ready to go to the midterm elections and with a very weak uh, agreement with Iran. So basically what Putin is doing is in Ukraine could make it more difficult for Biden to make concessions in Vienna, is what you're saying. That's right, exactly. Uh, so even though the negotiator with the earlier instructions are ready to agree with, I'm still doubtful that the Biden administration at this very political moment is going to approve that. And I think even the, 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 the uh, Bennett statement is very much to add to that. I mean, When you call it again and again a weak agreement and it's likely to be a weaker agreement than, than the previous one you make it more and more difficulties to be accepted by by Washington politically 
Well, <laughs> well, what's well, the purpose of those uh, w- statements? What the agreements defenders, if it is ever signed, could say in response is, of course, throw the blame at Trump for withdrawing from the previous agreement. And it's rightly so. I mean, I mean, this, this was a terrible mistake. There is no questions. With all the deficiencies of the 2015 agreement, uh, it gave us some sense of relaxation for the next uh, 10-15 years. Uh, it was far from perfect, but it gave us some sense of rough confidence. As you know, by now, it's already seven years. So if you're going to make a very similar agreement to the one of 2015, seven years already elapsed. So you, you have only in some aspect of the, of, of the agreement, only seven years to the, and even less so for, for the 10 years, 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. Certain issues are going to expire after 10 or 15 years or 20 years. So, so, um, the, so ta- the time, the time that has passed is by itself a, a component that makes the agreement in its That's current right. form weaker. That's right. Uh, you mentioned, so, uh, Avner, you mentioned China earlier as a key yeah, supporter of yeah. Iran and a country yeah. that gives it flexibility in face of uh, sanctions. Uh, yeah. Does China want uh, Iran to have a nuclear, uh, let's say, almost capacity? Does it care? Does it serve any of China's interests? What's the uh, reason for this obvious gap here between uh, China and the other world powers? No, I don't think that China wants Iran to have nuclear weapons. And again, I don't think that the proposition that Iran will have a blatant, fully assembled nuclear weapon, nuclear weapons is, is truly right now on an option. So this is not the case. But I think that China wouldn't mind if the United States would be seen weak. And a weak agreement with Iran would show the United States weak. And I don't think that the Chinese would worry too much If Iran would sneak even further towards the bomb and becoming a closer and closer uh, threshold nuclear weapon states so it's, it's, it, it's, it's not really their weapons. problem is what you're saying something like that and it's it's easier for the, for the it's easier for the economy it's undermining the United States hmm. two for the price of one <laughs> something like that mm-hmm What, what about uh, Russia? Because in 2015, I think one of the interesting aspects of that agreement, for all of its uh, well-known criticisms, and I also at the time, uh, I think, wrote about some of those uh, aspects and quoted people who, who had uh, warnings about it. But there was an interesting element there that you could see the U.S. and China and Russia Uh, and of course the Western European nations as well, getting to some kind of an agreement on this and having a shared policy. Do you feel that in the negotiations happening right now, we have the same dynamic or are the different sides uh, pulling in different directions? Very different dom- dynamics. I mean, what's happening in the Ukraines, which is not just in the last few weeks. I mean, it's longer than that. Um, I mean, the Ukraine is a manifestation by Putin of an insult to, Of uh, a deception of the United States that made 30 years ago during the time of the unification of Germany. Essentially, Putin and others believe, including some Americans, that essentially a word was given, a promise was made, even though it was not signed in paper, but by, a promise was by James made. Baker, they, they, they say, That's right? right. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And it's a great insult for, for, for the Russians if the fact that they lost that much the whole expansion of Europe. Right now, Putin is trying to retrieve some part of that. And I think that um, for him, the Iranian card is very much just as the Syrian card. 
is very much a way to emphasize uh, weakness of the United States. And I think for the United States, it's very difficult to be uh, active in more than one frontier. So that tension right now in the coming weeks is very much on, on Ukraine. And uh, it's possible that some part of diplomatic resolution for that would include some helping on the Iranian issue. That might be possible. So it could be some kind of effects in other frontiers. But as of now, as long as that issue is not being resolved, the focus is on that issue. And that's another reason why I think that Washington, whatever uh, the group uh, run by Rob Malley from Indiana may, may agree, I think that the White House would be slow and reluctant to, 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 to approve uh, as long as there is the crisis in the Ukraine. Yeah, and obviously the priority right now is the crisis in the Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. On the verge of a war in Europe, maybe the president doesn't want a political war on Capitol Hill, is what you're saying. Yeah, and it's difficult, you know, even for the United States, it's difficult to focus on more than one crisis. So you want to limit it to one crisis and the tension is there. Yeah, and, and we still it's have uh, we still have COVID in the background, maybe Taiwan. Uh, no lack of crisis for this administration. Indeed. Yeah, they, they inherited a, a, a quite a mess, we can say. <laughs> Indeed. Do you see also disagreements within the American team? Uh, you mentioned Rob Malley. We saw some people from his uh, negotiating team recently resign. resign. One of them, uh, Richard Nephew, uh, wrote on yeah. Twitter that there were disagreements over the policy. Uh, what do you think is the story behind all of that? I do not have the information, but uh, the speculation of many is that they felt that... Uh, Rob Malley is too soft and the instruction, the initial instruction that he got is too soft. He's too much willing to get an agreement. Uh, he thought that uh, agreement is a good thing for, for, for the Biden administration. Uh, and they felt that the price to pay for an agreement was too much. I think that's the reason for, the, for those resignations. Again, they, they did not go into the details, but it was pretty loud and clear that there was disagreement within the team. Well, one question I'm asking, and I would love, you know, if Richard Nephew was listening and wanted to come on our podcast, <laughs> maybe he can answer it himself. But when people criticize uh, Mali's approach for being too soft, and then on the other side, what you're telling me is uh, really the Iranians have hardened their stance and they will not take a tougher agreement. So maybe the U.S. needs to get to a point where it says, okay, we can live without this agreement. We have other options and actually mean it. The question is, can the Biden administration even say that? Can they come and say, we can live without an agreement, we have other options? Would anyone believe it at this point? A few months ago, it was not likely. I think that there might be a situation that they will come to that. Actually, just hours ago today, uh, there was a very interesting piece that I just read before we started this uh, conversation by Ray Kehead from you know, the former dean of the... Um, John Hopkins uh, size schools in Washington that he called exactly for that. He called for the Biden administration to leave the agreement to make partially tacit and partially open some statement about his resolution and red lines vis-a-vis Iran and to say that if Iran is not ready to get, we're going to be without it. And we are considering seriously the military option. This sounds a bit like uh, we mentioned James Baker earlier on the uh, NATO expansion front, but it, to me it reminds a bit of his famous quote about the Israelis and the Palestinians when he said, you know, the U.S. is withdrawing its hands from this, and if you want to talk to us, you know the number at the White House. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. 
Uh, in this case, I think the Iranian may not call back. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there is a great deal of concern about that. But it may be the only option. Uh, the problem with the Trump administration is that Trump was not was was willing to leave the, the agreement, but without making any clarity what about in between. And it was clear that Iran is not going to 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 accept the status quo. It was it was clear to everybody. Iran has waited, had waited actually a year from from 2018 2019 or so until it started you know seriously to accelerate nuclear activities. There was no any contingency planning. There was no any conversation at what point other options should be available, how to make how to make pressure using those those options. It doesn't mean to execute those options, but at least to make clear that you're ready to do it, to make some kind of a skeletal letter and to, to make the other side to understand that you are serious about it. There are early signs that the Biden administrations might be ready to consider those issues. Various statements and uh, signals that were given in conversation between Guns and Austin, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, shows that the United States is willing to consider a little with more considerations the uh, other options. We'll have to wait and see. Avner Cohen, thank you so much for joining us for this fascinating discussion. And we'll uh, have to invite you again because I suspect this issue is not going away anytime soon. So again, thank you. A pleasure. Take care. Up next, an interview with Gidon Bromberg of Ecopis Middle East about the climate crisis in Israel and our neighboring countries. Our guest today is Gidon Bromberg, the Israel director of Ecopis Middle East. Hello, Gidon. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much for joining us. Gidon is also going to speak later this week at a Haaretz conference on the climate crisis. And global warming and I'm gonna have the pleasure of interviewing him at the conference so I get to speak to him twice this week and learn from his wisdom. Gideon, today I want to talk to you a bit about the threats of climate change in the Middle East and specifically here in Israel and why we should be more aware and care more about the issue. Uh, I want to start though by asking you a bit about the conference that we're organizing later this week. Uh, what can listeners who might be interested in the event expect to see and hear there? So the conference couldn't be more timely. You know, the climate crisis is an issue of urgency. So everyone that's uh, really concerned about their future and the future of their children should be attending and certainly listening afterwards. I mean, there's real highlights from this conference. John Kerry. Yeah, Secretary the- Kerry will be presenting. There was a video interview him. Aluf Ben, the editor-in-chief of Haaretz, interviewed him in his current position as the president's special envoy to the climate crisis. Yeah, so you know, I got to um, uh, work with uh, Secretary Kerry in uh, the work of Ecopeace to advance a water energy exchange, uh, Israeli-Jordanian. We'd also intended it to be, of course, Palestinian. But, but the session that uh, you'll be talking with me about I think is the most important session of the whole conference. About the climate crisis in the Middle East. Exactly, because the climate crisis um, hits different parts of the world differently. The Middle East is a hot spot, while the rest of the world is fearful of a one and a half degree increase in temperature by the end of the century. We've already experienced one and a half degrees increase in temperature since the 1950s. We, we've increased, it feels like we get it every summer here in Tel Aviv. It's constantly on the rise. And in fact, you know, the, the forecasts are warning of a four to seven additional uh, degree increase in temperature. The Mediterranean Sea this last summer was two degrees higher 
than ever recorded in the historical record. It was a hot bath before. Now it's a, it's a hot bath that actually starts to burn your skin when you enter it. So what does this mean at the practical level when we talk about these scary numbers, a rise of you know, so-and-so degrees, the hottest ever measured? When we look into our future, for the people who live here on this land, what does it mean, let's say, 10 years from now, if the trend is not reversed or slowed down? So we must slow down. Uh, we must slow down the trend. We must, in, in fact, you know, reach the target of zero emissions. And we need to do much better in Israel. You know, we've only set 30, uh, 30% renewables by the end of this decade, while the rest of the world is talking about 45 to 55 a percent renewables or reduction in in uh, you mean in, in the amount of energy generated uh, not by fossil fuels exactly exactly so so we need to be uh, setting much higher targets but I think the message of of the session that um, uh, we'll be holding together is that this can't be done alone cooperation to meet the challenge of the climate crisis is not a gift to the other side and It's an issue of absolute necessity. And that's the message that all of us in this neighborhood have to understand, that our survival uh, you know, to, to meet the challenge of the climate crisis is not just dependent on us. It's really dependent on the weakest link as you know, other neighboring states, God forbid, continue to fail. Look at Syria. Look at the failure and the collapse and the suffering to the people of Syria, partly Jews. To the failure of the Assad government to meet the challenge of the climate crisis this is one of the most interesting explanations and the uh, theories related to the war in Syria that I uh, have heard uh, I know you're not the first to make it but when you look at it you see first and foremost before the extreme toll of human suffering and environmental catastrophe that caused it so the environmental catastrophe of the climate crisis contributed to it I mean what 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 really led to the failure is the failure of governance mm-hmm. a failure to respond and that's what the session that's what we'll be talking about is the need to respond urgently and to scale that will uh, retain this region as something that we can continue to thrive and survive in and be a livable region completely because because the forecast basically tells us that we By the end of this uh, uh, century, we're going to look like the Gulf on its worst days. That means that you cannot work <laughs> outside. You know, I'm, it's uh, February and I'm sweating here just to hear you say the words that the Gulf in its worst. I see Aaron, our producer, <laughs> nodding in agreement. What can be done, though? Because there is also a very pessimistic tone today when discussing climate change. We all read and hear the arguments that maybe it's too late at this point, that it's beyond our reach. Do you agree with that? No, I don't. I mean, I think the challenge is, is enormous, but we have no other alternative but to meet the challenge. And you know, some of the, the recent agreement between Israel and Jordan is an example where Israel can, uh, can today meet its commitments to the climate crisis by buying large-scale renewable energy from Jordan. And Jordan can maintain its water security by buying additional desalinated water for, uh, from Israel. This is the... the type of interdependencies that we need to expand and build on and we need to include the Palestinians here because you know the the, the situation of, of, of uh, the lack of water security the lack of climate resilience mm-hmm. that exists in all of the neighboring states and you know p- particularly in the Palestinian territories um, is a threat to 
to our own national security here in Israel. You know, I live close to the Israeli border with Gaza, and I remember a few years ago a conversation with a very high-ranking military officer, um, and I asked him, it was, it was in my home, and I asked him, what's the most frightening thing for you as a commander in this part of Israel on the border with Gaza? And I was expecting that he would say something about rockets or tunnels, and he said, my worst nightmare is that Gaza would run out of drinking water. So he's absolutely right. Gaza, in fact, has run out of drinking water. And, and this was several years ago. And people are, are, are filling jerry cans. You know, Gaza's gone back to the Middle Ages as far as water supply. Everyone here should be worried. All Israelis should be worried. When Gaza fails, and every time there's a, there's a war between Israel and, and Hamas and you know, electricity, uh, a fuel stops, to, stops going into Gaza, we see about 100 million liters of raw sewage flow into the Mediterranean off the coast of Gaza. And then Gaza. they come to the beaches of uh, Tel Aviv and Natanya. Not only do they come to the beaches of, 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 of Israel, they, they contribute to closing down our desalination plants. And today, about 80% of the drinking water of Israel comes from desalination plants along the Mediterranean. So, so a failure of sewage in Gaza could lead to a shortage of water in Israel, is what you're telling me. And pandemic disease, when, when people are drinking unhealthy water in Gaza. You know, look at the situation of corona. It doesn't respect any, any borders. Should cholera or typhoid break out God in Gaza? Forbid. God forbid. But it's likely to happen if the deteriorating situation continues. Those type of pandemic disease don't stop at borders. In general, when you look today at the Middle East, um, and we know in the past there were big wars in this region over all kinds of natural resources. Are we talking about a future of wars over water? So we shouldn't because we do have the technology and if we know how to cooperate, but that's the condition. If we cooperate, we can overcome the uh, adaptation uh, uh, stress of, of, of reduced uh, precipitation rainfall because of the climate crisis. But it's completely dependent on understanding that we must cooperate. Cooperation is not a gift to the other side. And it is all, an issue of national interest to each of us. And it's not some kind of a privilege that we can decide if we want it or not. Absolutely. And that's the mindset change that we're starting to see, but needs to expand tremendously. So, so the relationship with Jordan is improving in that sense because we're going to start supplying, selling more water to Jordan. But we, we need to understand that the technology that we have in Israel is something that we need to utilize for the benefit of the region as a whole. And the region as a whole needs to understand that Israel has lots of solutions that they need, and therefore there's a need to work with us. What else can Israel offer countries in the area when it comes to dealing with the climate crisis, except really for the water deals with Jordan, which I agree with you are very encouraging? So there's also agriculture. I mean, you know, we're, we're a powerhouse of, of climate-smart agriculture, drip, from drip irrigation to mm -hmm. crops you know, selected to, to deal with more saline water or, or in, to grow in a more drought Built area. Built for the local conditions. Absolutely. So we have so much experience here you know, uh, for, for over the last 70 years. That experience needs to be shared in a positive way, and our neighbors also need to be accepting of this experience with the understanding that working together is not a privilege, as you said, it's an absolute necessity. Where do you see that change happening and where not yet? So we're starting to see changes in Israeli, with Israeli decision makers, but also with Palestinian decision makers. You know, for the, for the first time in these last years, 
and um, we're, we're seeing an understanding that we need to move on a new water arrangement mm-hmm. between Israelis and Palestinians. What does that mean? It means that the Oslo Accords, which basically have held water issues hostage. If the audience remembers what the Oslo Accords were about, it set aside five hard issues to be solved later. So Jerusalem, refugee, security, and water were one of those five issues. Mm -hmm. The idea was that we either move forward on all five together or we don't move forward on anything. That rationale of all or nothing... It cannot hold anymore. It cannot, it, it's to the, detriment, to the detriment of the survival of us all. So we're starting to see an understanding with Israeli decision makers, with Palestinian decision makers. What you're saying is if we'll have adequate water, we can continue fighting over Jerusalem for another hundred years. But if we don't, there's no point. So I'm saying more than that, that perhaps if we build trust over sharing our waters more fairly and developing new resources, perhaps we can have some confidence oh. building that will help us advance other final status issues. That too. is too optimistic for me, but uh, I'll still take the argument because it makes sense. Well, I am echo peace after all. Yes, yes. I, you know, Gideon, when we met a few years ago, I remember we discussed the issue of the southern part of the Jordan River. And we just had a, a special project here at haaretz.com about Route 90, Israel's longest road, which runs parallel to the Jordan River. And uh, we talked about the sad situation of the river in many parts of it. Have we had any progress on that front since, you know, I think we spoke about this maybe in 2015 or 16, or is it only getting drier and more sad, that, that part of the river. So we, we have had some progress. We've seen about $100 million of investments to remove sewerage from the Israeli side, Palestinian side, and Jordanian side of the Jordan uh, Valley. Israel started to release for the first time in 2014 9 million cubic meters annually. It's now increased... From, to, from the Sea of Galilee into the southern part of the Jordan. Yes, it's now increased to about 20 million mm-hmm. annually. I mean, it's still a puddle compared to you know, the, the historical flow. But we now do see with the reversal of the national water carrier, you know, Ben-Gurion built this carrier that, t- that took water from the Sea of Galilee and would bring it to the, know, south. To the south, to, the, to Tel Aviv and to the Negev. Today, Israel's completing a billion shekel investment in connecting all the desalination plants to the water carrier that would bring desalinated water to the Sea of Galilee. Here, we still have some real advocacy to do, to release the water supplied to the Sea of Galilee, to allow it to flow down the Jordan River, and in that way, uh, supply more water to the Jordanians and the Palestinians. Let's use the Jordan River as the regional natural water carrier that was meant to be. Mm-hmm. So you're saying water for peace, and maybe also just, I think about how sad it is that this you know, historical uh, treasure that we have here, the Jordan River, is, uh, is drying up, and with it, the Dead Sea, of course. Absolutely. This is a river holy to half of humanity. And we, the people of Abraham, the Abrahamic people, have turned this river into a sewage canal. It's unforgivable. I I remember uh, at one time uh, in the United States getting asked, uh, what uh, is the size of the ships that flow down the Jordan River? And I had to say it's kayaks, basically. <laughs> People imagine it as much more than it really well, is. Well, I wish even kayaks would make, uh, would make in, in many parts of the journey, a, a kayak. You'd need to walk. Yes. And, yes. and it's full of mines and it's dangerous, so, so you can't even do that. But in the southern part of it, yes. South of the Sea of Galilee, yeah. absolutely. Uh, you know, another question I have to ask you since we are discussing here the climate crisis, and I, I think maybe this is something that some of our listeners are grappling with. There is also... I think a question people are asking themselves more and more, 
regarding personal responsibility on the issue of, of climate crisis because some people say well look the governments are failing the big institutions that are were supposed to protect the world whether it's the UN or the World Bank you know they are failing so how important is it really that I recycle my milk carton and take the train to work instead of my car so so absolutely transportation is a critical issue that, that we need to change from you know, a to Z about 20% of our emissions are, are related to transport. So taking public transport and putting pressure on our government to provide adequate public transport yes. is the key. So it does come back to the Knesset here in Israel, to politicians. We need to uh, hold them uh, to account. We need to vote according to those parties that take the climate crisis seriously so that policies, investments, allocation of government resources are put in place. You know, in Israel, we don't even have a climate law yet. I mean, you know, the coalition uh, agreed that such a law would be the basis of this coalition. You know, we're, we're still waiting to see the advance of that climate law and then the needed finances to then implement the law. Well, maybe after our conference on Wednesday, some uh, <laughs> people will get more interested in this because we are going to have some interesting speakers also from the political or uh, governmental side. Uh, how do you keep your optimism on this issue in face of all the evidence? I remain optimistic mostly because I interact with a lot of people. I interact with a lot of young people at Ecopeace. You know, we, we have uh, programs in schools across the country where we, where we teach climate and water diplomacy. And I see the level of real concern, of, of real commitment. You know, there's not only the Greta Thornburg of, of Sweden. Mm. We have Israeli Gretas. We have Palestinian Gretas. We have Jordanian Gretas. And they give me the optimism that, yes, this young generation will not shut up and will not forgive if we don't act now. Gideon Bromberg of Ecopeace, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast and looking forward to our discussion on Wednesday and the Haaretz Climate Conference in general. Can't wait to see it happen. Thank you very much. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much to our producer, Arne Ehrlich, and also to Jonathan Gibson, who helped us with this episode. My colleague, Alison Kaplan-Sommer, will be here again on Friday with a new episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.